African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us for a new week of African Dialogue. you with me, Benjamin Mushatama, right here on the shortwave service on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa. If you're listening to us on DSTV, we're on Channel 802. Thank you for joining us there as well. If you're listening to us in South Africa and some countries that have access in the SADC region uh, to that uh, channel. Today, we're going to be looking at the campaign trail uh, for most of the political parties in South Africa as the country will be having its elections on May 2009. And just recently, we heard from the South African Independent Electoral Commission, which was addressing a press conference stating that uh, the final date of when this particular election will take place will be confirmed by the President Ramaphosa. We're still not sure when uh, as political parties have started their campaign for this year's elections. What has been evident is that major political parties such as the African National Congress and the Democratic Alliance have tensions within their political parties. So we're seeing a lot of fighting within uh, the parties themselves. Meanwhile, we're also seeing some new political formations that have registered to compete for seats in Parliament. That's a usual thing in South Africa. Not sure if these uh, political parties that are emerging this year are any different from the rest. But to assist us in our studios, we've got uh, Grant Masterson, who is a senior program manager at the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa. And also on the line, once again, we have Zora Dawood, who is the director for the Center for Unity in diversity. Thank you both for coming through. Grant, I mean, it has been an interesting kind of vision to see what's been happening since last year around November, December, when these campaigns have actually started unfolding. What has actually stood out for you right now in terms of what's happening from the campaign season? You know, there's there's a lot of um news items uh, in the in the news cycle about uh, corruption the zondo commission many commissions that have been instituted and that's actually the stuff of governance uh, and yet it seems to be be running in parallel to parties making promises yeah. uh, trying to draw uh, the stories running from those commissions of inquiry and bringing them into this is why you shouldn't vote for this party this is why mm-hmm. you should vote for us it's been a very robust um, exchange in the in the public domain. I think um, a lot of people who I'm speaking to are saying, "Oh, it's it's crazy this time. <laughs> it's really been there's so much uh, to pay attention to, so yeah. many astonishing stories, uh, and the parties are picking up and playing off on them and trying mm. to gain advantage. So very robust campaigning so far. We'll come back to that state commission issue. What also has been standing out is really the tensions within political parties. We've seen this in the uh, African National Congress in itself, especially what you're highlighting as names have been coming out. In 
in the State Commission, Didombowene and Cyril Ramaphosa at the World Economic Forum, uh, dissing uh, Jacob Zuma, the former president. And after that, you're just seeing a defense from a certain faction within the African National Congress. That shows certain signs during the season that things are not as usual. There's not real that, that real unity within the African National Congress that has been put in the public domain as we've seen in previous years. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, but this is not an unusual thing uh, for most parties. Uh, the, 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 the nature of our electoral system itself is, is partly to blame for this because it's a list-based system. And mm-hmm. so the higher up your name appears on the list, the more likely you are to get a seat in parliament or to be elected into a particular position. And so in the lead up to the finalization of party lists, you do, you have intra-party contestation Mm. and then you have the formation of factions, the formation of uh, interest groups and not just in the ANC. You see Mm. this in several of the parties. Mm. Uh, I think you mentioned the DA as well. Uh, But, you know, most of the parties are looking very closely at their list and perhaps if some of the smaller parties are keeping the internal contests uh, under wraps, certainly all of the parties, there are people who are jockeying for position to be on those lists and the higher up on those lists, the better. Zora, let me bring you into this discussion. What, what are your thoughts? What's sticking out for you right now? Because as was highlighted by Grant in our studio, that this seems like a different type of campaign trail. Things are very contentious this time around. There's a lot of issues to actually collate as an ordinary citizen as you look at things and un- un- unpacking themselves. I agree. I agree with Grant. But I think what we mustn't miss is... There have been a series of conversations, legislative, parliamentary, that are really the, the key. It's going to ignite the nature of electoral politics in the next couple of months. And those have been, if you think about the proposed amendments to Section 25, for right. example, the land issue, the expropriation bill, that is a significant and probably one of the most important issues emerging. The other is obviously corruption and the nexus between corruption and party politics, so mm. inter and intra-party politics. Mm. You know, with the EFF forgetting for a while that they have been seriously implicated in the VBS scandal. Mm. The ANC, you know, with the Watsons and the Guptas, and Mm. it goes on and on with the SOEs as well. So I think that's going to be the nature of the game in the next couple of months. It's already started. The danger for me is holding parliamentary politics hostage to electoral politics, Mm. and that's exactly what we've witnessed that's the key issue. Now, I don't take the view that the electorate is not discerning. On the contrary, I think we have a very discerning electorate in South Africa and mm-hmm. how people choose to join the dots and use that knowledge and information analysis to vote is going to be incredibly compelling because all of the commissions are not taking any prisoners in what is being disclosed and people are digesting all of that, and presumably people will act on that information. Mm. Grant, let's let's pick on what Zora is highlighting there, because there's a very important point that she make there around the fact that issues of governance seem to have taken a sideline, issues around uh, service delivery. They're not as poignant as they've been historically. You're seeing an over... Um, 
kind of empowering issue that is more leaning towards um, parties themselves and how they conduct themselves. What are your thoughts around that in terms of what the electorate wants themselves versus to what political uh, parties are actually um, dealing with in terms of their own internal struggles? Look, it's a, it's a natural phenomenon, not just here in South Africa, but around the world, yeah. that uh, come election time, politicians start to sing for their supper. They make you promises. They, mm. they want to be re-elected. Otherwise, they don't return in the new parliament. Mm. And, of course, that's not in their interest. So, of course, you, you are right. A governance does seem to be secondary to the primary interest of politicians mm. at this stage. But we need to be careful. I think we need to also be a little bit cynical as voters and realize okay. that actually at all times, uh, the, the politician's interest is in ensuring that they are able to be re-elected. And, mm. and we need to have that cynicism when we look at them and, and, and judge their actions, not just uh, ahead of the elections, but throughout the electoral cycle, the five-year period when you've elected people mm. into, into parliament. You need to be saying, well, what are they doing? Are, they, are, are these things that they're voting on in my interest as a citizen? Are they in the country's collective interests? Or are they in their own private interests? And again, to come back to the Zondo Commission, we're seeing really astonishing allegations come out into mm. the public of all sorts of political figures who you and I recognize their mm. names uh, being accused of acting in their own interest instead mm. of the interests of the electorate. Well, uh, you know, that leaves me in a vacuum somehow as a voter, Zora, because I'm not quite sure how to make the decision this time around, whether I look at the, the politics of these political parties or I refer to their manifestos. Because when I look at their manifestos and some of the representations that have been made in the last few weeks, it's underwhelming how actually most of these political parties are actually inspiring me. I've spoken to friends. People are actually looking more at the ethical position of most of these political parties. I mean, when you look at the Democratic Alliance, you're also seeing uh, these skirmishes happening, the the race cards being pulled out. I mean, the, the, the latest story that came up was when the Democratic Alliance had that uh, big uh, uh, promotional board that was looking at listing the Marikana uh, victims and stating the fact that this is what the ANC has done. But the black electorate was maybe kind of not sure about that particular strategy. And that actually made me as a black person think twice around the Democratic Alliance. But it was more of an ethical issue and did little to do with, had little to do with uh, uh, their manifesto in themselves. And that's where I'm having a problem with this campaign trail, Zora. I agree with you. I think very few people go and show through the content of party manifestos. Hmm. Um, and that's where there's a cynicism. I, the cynicism is they're going to promise us the earth and deliver very little. So very few people the world over actually judge a party by the contents of their manifesto. There's a whole slew of factors for voting in a particular way. You know, some of it is historic. Some of it is race-based. Some of it is a political party um, responds to one or two or three sweet spots in my own ideological, political, um, sociological uh, being. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think one can sort of slim it down and say these are the particular issues. Very, very few people 
read political party manifestos and make their crosses on the basis of party man- manifestos. I think, you know, if you look, for example, at the EFF's launch over the weekend, it was televised. People probably followed it on the television, radio, social media. Mm-hmm. And what, what we saw were whichever political direction you're in and follow, you saw powerful, potent sound bites. Hmm. So it wasn't the content of a manifesto, but really those sound bites. So if I'm an unemployed youth, that's going to be my sweet spot, for example. And I'm not saying that people uncritically follow political parties. You know, people may have a very down-to-earth position on the Constitution or non-racialism, for example, and may then seek to understand which party will touch that spot for me. But I think, you know, for, for many people, it's about sound bites. It's about the power of social media as opposed to sitting with, you know, a document that's 100 pages long and going through that. Um, very rarely have I found the content of a manifesto compelling enough in terms of the content and direction um, that would compel me to vote for a party on that basis. Mm. Well, I want to take a quick break and we're going to come back to that issue of manifestos and the direction that they are taking because I think also when you look at the EFF, they're almost compromised right now, especially with the ANC actually taking over uh, the land redistribution without compensation agenda. Do they have actually a leg to stand on this time around, the fact that the Zuma factor is not central to the conversation this time around? We'll look at that after this break. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Again, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Again. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the external service into sub-Saharan Africa of the SABC. Thank you for joining us on our various platforms on Shortwave, on DSTV Channel 802. And if you're listening to us online on www.channelafrica.co.za, thank you for joining us there on that platform. You with me, Benjamin Mushatama, uh, for the next hour. Uh, just a reminder, in around 11.45 Central African time, we'll get our business news and thereafter we'll get our sports today. Today we hang out with Grant Masterson, who is a senior program manager at the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa. Alongside him on the line, we have Zora Darwood, who is the director for the Center for Unity and Diversity. And we're looking at the campaign trail so far. I have to say that I'm a bit confused right now which direction to take in terms of when I make my mark. I don't know if I'm going to spoil it. Not quite sure if I'm even going to go uh, to the polling station in itself. But 
But uh, Grant, let's look at these manifestos because most of them are starting to sound very similar, especially when you now compare the stance that uh, uh, the ANC is taking with the land redistribution issue. Uh, That wasn't very central in the last national elections when the ANC was putting forward its manifesto. Definitely it's changed and shifted and I think it's under the pressure of the EFF. Do you think now the EFF has a foot to stand on? The fact that now uh, Zuma is no longer central in the conversation. I know that they have been giving themselves uh, medals of success in the removal of former President of Julia, uh, of, of uh, former President Jacob Zuma and placing the issue of land redistribution into the agenda in Parliament. Where do you think we're going when it comes to manifesto um, uh, agendas and how they put them forward right now? Because I am seeing a little shift. Look, I, I think before the break, Zora was talking about how very few people actually interrogate and internalize mm-hmm. these uh, manifestos, and that's absolutely true. We shouldn't we, we shouldn't take that truth and therefore conclude that manifestos don't matter. Sure. Um, because they, they are very important documents, and they are very useful documents, even for people who haven't read them. They, they give uh, parties identity. They talk about the flavor of the parties themselves and, and how those parties position themselves uh, with respect to the voters. Uh, and so a party like the EFF, as you've pointed out, has positioned issues of land and land redistribution. Uh, they are aggressively pursuing within the parliament and the legislative cycle uh, an amendment to section 25 and they are taking that and i think zora alluded to this earlier they're taking that legislative cycle into the electoral cycle and conflating issues Mm -hmm. there um so that's that's clearly something that the eff believes is going to win them votes they've looked at who they're trying to attract um and and i think that you know if if a party can use its manifesto like the EFF is trying to do here to put daylight between itself and other political parties, so these two or three signature policies to really capture the imagination. Mm. So certainly um, there's contestation between the ANC and the EFF mm. right now as to who is claiming that land, land expropriation issue. Yeah. issue. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's really being left up to the voters for, for who they believe the, uh, will you know, act in their best interest with respect to that particular debate. But the manifestos themselves, I think they bring out two or three signature issues then they've been successful because those do make their way into mm. public conversation and then uh, people like you and me end up having conversations <laughs> about them yeah Zora what are your thoughts because what I've seen as a strategy by uh, uh, ANC President Sir Ramaphosa currently is that uh, he's been using the word caution and aligns it with the issue of land redistribution and that seems to be a different way that he's uh, tackling the issue doesn't make a, a big significant difference to what the EFF is saying or are they saying one thing in parallel and maybe it's going to make it difficult for me and you to figure out what's the difference between how the two are going to implement? Well, I think oftentimes I like to think that I would prefer to see a party's strategy and tactics Mm -hmm. document as Mm -hmm. opposed to its manifesto. Um, And I think that's where you see the sort of real cut and thrust of the ideological positions emerging. Now, I think with the ESF and the ANC on the land issue, you know, one has to ask in Parliament who led whom by the nose. It's an issue that the ANC cannot ignore. I don't think it defended the Constitution and the imperatives of the Constitution in respect of Section 25 as vigorously as it should have, as it ought to have, 
it kind of rolled over and it allowed the EFF to set the tempo on, on that debate. The upshot is that Willett, in the run-up to the elections, on a very critical issue, the equivalent of what in the last election was service delivery failures, mm. Willett turn around and say, but actually we were party to Section 25. We stand by the fact that the constitutional, a constitutional imperative is as it is and we can defend it. Or they tell, in some senses, a more populist line that the EFF is doing. And I think one has to watch very, very carefully how the ANC moves in this space. There is... And again, let's not assume that mm. it's a homogenous ANC. I mm. think Cyril's ANC is a more constitutionally bound ANC, and then there's the other. Mm. And I think that's the, the real fight within the, with the ANC. I don't think they are of one mind in terms of what are strategies and tactics. Mm. And in many ways, the election is going to be about that, which ANC triumphs. There's a myriad of political parties, and I think, as you said earlier, Grant said earlier as well, within each of the political parties, you're seeing fissures. Mm. And the ANC is only more public, and what's emerging in the commissions, the various commissions, whether it's, you know, the Yvonne Mohoro one mm. or the Nugent one, uh, Zondo, mm. Petty, it all of that is attesting to a party that is at war with itself. Mm. And just staying to that final point you're making is, you know, clearly it seems it's going to be difficult for Cyril Ramaphosa's dream of reinventing the image of the African National Congress to be realized here because, you know, the image of the ANC is being muddied throughout this particular uh, campaign trail by what's happening in these uh, inquiries and, and commissions, Grant, and this reinvention and this Tumamina notion seems to be deteriorating the more information we see. Could this cost the ANC? We actually have the opposite. What's quite interesting at the moment, according to the the, the opinion polls uh, that that we've seen so far, is that we see the popularity of the person of the president, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Mm -hmm. President Ramaphosa, is actually greater than the ANC's popularity right now. Uh, And in talking about manifestos, we also need to recognize that more so than a manifesto, people identify with the leaders of parties. Mm. Um, and, and that is a powerful thing. If, if I can think of the person of Ramaphosa and I can think, okay, Ramaphosa stands for this and that and other thing, and he is the leader of his, his party, mm. that very often is persuasive for a voter uh, in persuading them that, no, this is, this is a party I can vote for or I will never vote for this party mm. because this person is the leader. Um, so in, in that context... There is the possibility of reinvention because the ANC has presented Ramaphosa as the leader of the ANC. But to Zora's point, don't assume that those fishes are going to go away mm. now because mm. we want to present a united front. Mm. Well, let me take a quick break. And then when we come back, I'd like to look at the creation of these newer, younger part political parties. 
do they actually pose a threat? Where I sit, I don't see so that being the trend historically where new parties that are emerging actually threaten the bigger ones. And uh, we can talk about uh, Saudi's uh, former SABC COO's um, party, the African Content Movement. Very interesting name in itself. And I've listened to the guy trying to explain his manifestos from us exporting natural hair. It's very, very strange stuff. And also the vague African transformation movement that also is coming into the scene, which is a fairly new party, is also an interesting formation. We'll speak about what that says about our democracy. Does it mean it's flourishing? I don't know if it means that it's flourishing if we don't see those numbers in in Parliament. But let's take a quick break. We'll be back after this. I'm an actress. I'm a motivational speaker. Born with albinism. Um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebati, the presenter of the Albinism Report a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebazi, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa. It's uh, 33 minutes past 11 o'clock Central African time. Having a very robust, uh, very cerebral conversation with Zora Darwood, who's joining us on the line from Cape Town, if I'm not mistaken. She's the director for the Center for Unity and Diversity. And joining us in our Johannesburg studios is Grant Masterson, who is a senior program manager at the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa. Well, let's uh, look at the smaller nyana parties uh, i don't know if they've got smaller nyana skeletons as was once highlighted by one of our ministers here but let's look at uh, the new formations the sabc coo saudim soneng has his own african content movement interesting name the fact that it comes from the sabc seems like a, a very interesting strategy there and the very vague african transformation movement grant do you, we don't really know much about these parties but I know that Cloud uh, Swinning has been on a, a small um, campaign going to town halls and different um, places and trying to assert his place in this particular competition. What do you make of these formations? I mean, when you look historically, we had Akhang, we had Cope. Uh, I mean, Cope is the one that seems to still have a dwindling support, but when you look at Akhang, it's probably dead by now. These new formations, there's a trend of them dying out. What do you make of these uh, uh, new little giants that are trying to emerge? 
Look, I think firstly, let me defend um, Khang. They are still in Parliament. So they're not dead yet. And I'm sure they're hoping to improve their electoral performance as they go. Sure. But I think, you know, this is this is part of a multi-party democracy. And it's, it's one of the wonderful things about it is that uh, if you are able to meet the requirements for registration, you can form a political party. We have 12 par- uh, parliamentary political parties represented, mm. uh, but we have at this stage nearly 60 additional parties who have contested elections in the country. Now, some of them are more of the same. They just they just want to put a different face on top of the same policies. Then you start to ask, what's the value of a mm. party mm. forming and just offering you the same but saying, don't trust them, trust us instead. Mm. However, within uh, a very diverse country like South Africa, we have diverse opinions and diverse values and ecosystems. We have religious parties. We have atheistic parties. Mm. We have parties that are advocating for the legalization of Dacha, mm. uh, which which is doing quite well at the moment. So, mm. you know, you, you are allowing the voter a multiplicity of choice. Now, mm. you know, you can get into the argument of, is a vote for a small party a wasted vote? Mm. Well, if that party gets a seat in parliament, they get to represent those views in the national parliament, and that's valuable. Mm. So we have 12 different parties whose views are different represented right now. Mm. And so the, the introduction of additional views with interesting and strange ideas, if the electorate is inspired and mm. catches the imagination of the electorate sufficiently to get the numbers, then that's fabulous, and that's multi-partyism mm. at work. Is it uh, this vibrancy needed? Is it effective, Zora, that uh, um, Grant is speaking about right now? Um, I'm not quite sure if we should make the, par- the, the, the circle bigger if people are going to represent more, more or less of the same um, values or um, kind of ambitions. Well, I, you know, I take the view that you must allow a hundred flowers to bloom and not <laughs> all are the same. Sure. Um, I'm a staunch advocate of multi-party democracy. The pragmatist in me, though, says essentially it's going to be a three-horse race uh, with ANC, the DA, the EFF, and then trailing in the rear, you'd find the ACDP, mm. COPE, UDM, and perhaps the, you know, hung with one seat, etc. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Each, you know, each political party really represents aspirations, political views of however many people voted for them. And, you know, to get one seat in Parliament, it proportionate to the vote, it could range from anything from 60,000 to 110,000 votes. So that's a significant pocket of votes to get one seat in in Parliament. Um, But the real deal in Parliament, we know, is really around the three larger political parties. Mm. And then you find the myriad of views, say if it's a religious view or there's a hint of sort of morality that has to be decided on, as some political parties would frame it, you'd find the ANC, the ACDP, Mm. um, putting its head above the parapet because it accords with their particular party ideological views. So I think there's a myriad of that. Um, Where I think multi-party democracy is very useful is when it comes to contentious Mm. issues where you have to, where political parties have to find common ground to vote down on an issue. And I think what's going to emerge in the next uh, parliament after May 2019 is the issue of land, is what shape will that take 
who will vote with whom. So you may well finding find a moderate ANC and the DA uh, forming an alliance. So that's the interest that emerges around multi-party democracy, electoral democracy, and hence multi-party parliamentary um, democracy. Mm. Sure. If I can come in there, I mean, the, the, there is a, a, an intrinsic value to having these smaller parties in Parliament, both numerically as, as well as it, the, some, of, some of the historical things that, that have actually impacted the nature of our current democracy were brought in by some of the small parties. At the, at the point of the CODESA negotiations in 1994, we got the nine-province provincial structure because of the fringe parties who felt that the National Party and the African National Congress were doing all of the negotiating and that this was going to lead to a very centrist-style government. Mm-hmm. And so the smaller parties agitated very, very strongly and powerfully for a nine-province system with provinces with their own uh, semi-autonomous uh, ability to make laws. So, you know, even right back to the, the, the dawn of our democracy, you've seen these smaller parties add their flavor to the type of democracy that we have. So we can't discount them. And if you look at them proportionately in the National Assembly, they account for about 15 to 20 percent of the voters, mm-hmm. uh, depending on, on the the. Uh, particular vote. So these smaller parties do matter Mm. to our democracy. I I agree with you there. And not only do we have uh, new smaller parties, but there's another new demographic that uh, everyone has been gunning for and emphasizing, I think, through the IEC, which is the youth demographic. Um, How do you think they're going to change the game, Grant? Look, unfortunately, I was disappointed with the, the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we are a very youthful population, and the vast majority of our population and the vast majority of the uh, eligible electorate are young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the IEC was announcing something in the region of 800,000 new registrations. Now, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there are 800,000 people who've registered to vote who couldn't have voted mm-hmm. otherwise. But in terms of the whole numbers of, of young people, that is not a particularly large turnout mm-hmm. by that young that youth segment that mm-hmm. they were trying to target. Uh, and so you have the same old problem, which is mm-hmm. that the, the young people are the ones who uh, seem to be the least interested in voting, and it looks like that pattern is going to continue. I don't want to call things uh, mm-hmm. prematurely here, but just based on the evidence we have in the registrations, I was disappointed with the numbers of young people. Mm. Uh, Zora, let me come to you as we're about to wrap it up. Uh, um, Grant highlighting his disappointment in the fact that we didn't have a lot of uh, young voters going to register for this year's elections. Are we struggling to capture the imagination? I think it is an issue of imagination, but crucially it is a concern around who is speaking on behalf of that vital constituency. Mm. Um, So, you know, as with women, for example, Politician will, politicians will speak on behalf of, of women. And I think the youth are a savvy group of people, but who have not been adequately engaged mm. about their issues. I think there's a, there's a tendency to discount youth um, other than voting fodder. Mm. And that constituency has grown a little bit more um, cynical about politics, Obviously, as youth are more connected with social media and the exchange of ideas happens on social media, 
that influences a commitment to formal politics when they can vent and air views on social media and face-to-face. I think that has diminished interest. I'm not saying it's, mm-hmm. it's the only reason for that. I just think political parties have not sufficiently appealed in terms that speak to youth aspirations, mm-hmm. that speak to employment or unemployment as the crisis is. And the youth cohort is the largest block of mm-hmm. unemployed. So, you know, I think most politicians worth their salt should address that because it speaks to an aspiration. That's what electoral politics are about, mm. is speaking to reality but also speaking to the aspirations of people. And I think they're sort of losing the plot. I don't want to say past tense, but that's the, the quick mm. guest footwork that needs to happen urgently. Well, we're going to leave it there. We could have touched on other issues that I wanted us to speak on, but we've run out of time, and I think that we have highlighted uh, various dimensions of these campaign tra- this campaign trail this particular election season, and we'll see what May brings to us, and uh, hopefully we'll get the date soon so we ready ourselves and start thinking what decision we can make. But thank you uh, to Zora Darwood, Director of the Center for Unity and Diversity, joining us from Cape Town in our Johannesburg studio. Thank you to Grant Masterson, who is a senior program manager at the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa. It's been fantastic speaking to both of you. Hopefully we'll catch up soon and uh, see what other issues we can tackle, uh, especially to the lead up of that particular day, maybe even after when we see who has triumphed uh, on uh, uh, this year's elections. And it's very pivotal this year because we've got an economic downturn. We've got a lot of things to turn around when it comes to issues of governance, especially when you look at uh, issues around corruption. But thank you both for giving us your time. My pleasure. Fantastic. That takes us to 11.45 Central African time. I can already see Tracy Boomgaard uh, standing by. She's looking at me, ready to give you the business news. But we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll give you our economics update. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. (laughs) You know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective.